You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. Um, I'm going to jump on the mic here and do another solo podcast. Um, I guess it's been brought to my attention that actually the solo ones tend to do get as many listens as uh, the ones that we bring guests on and stuff. So I think, you know, coming back from the Arnold and stuff, um, haven't had a lot of like organization into setting this up. So I'm just going to do another like what one of the new PPS team members said is a flow of consciousness. Um, and today I'm going to discuss chaos theory and how that actually applies to powerlifting. Um, one of the, so at the Arnold, one of the things that I like really recognized was as coaches and athletes, we tend to be very critical of other coaches and athletes. Um, you know, whether that's as a coach, you're critiquing lifters technique, um, or, other coaches methods into strength training those types of things um and like an event at the arnold these are all elite lifters um and i think i have a very different frame of mind when we go to these types of events or just like in general where i'm more observational and i think i have this observational mindset when i'm coaching my lifters um and it wasn't always like this at all um There was a period of time, especially in the beginning, and I don't think this was necessarily a bad thing at the time because of my limited understanding of um, different theories and stuff in terms of strength training. So basically, everybody just followed the program. I used percentages, um, and we would overload volumes and and stuff like that. And there were variations in there, but the variations were um, extremely specific to the comp lifts. And... They were more, I used them because I was told they work on fixing X, Y, and Z in the lifts, in the lifts themselves. Um, And over time, as I learned more and stuff, um, this became more flexible. And the more flexible that it became, the better the results that we were getting. Um, Fast forward to maybe a year and a half, two years ago. And Mike Amato had sent me this John Kiley paper. Uh, It was titled Periodization Paradigms in the 21st Century, Evidence-Led or Tradition-Driven. And reading this, it legitimately, like, rocked my world. It was one of those, you know, you read it once, you're like, holy shit, what just happened? Um, Like, literally, I, I felt like I was in the movie Inception, like it ended and I had no fucking idea what had just happened. So I went back and reread it and like thought about a lot of things. And like, because I've always had this observational mindset at the time, I was realizing that how I was running things wasn't always working the way that I thought it would. We weren't yielding a 100% success rate um, in hitting PRs, running the program that way. And even, you know, repeating same blocks with new numbers wasn't yielding the same progress that the previous blocks had. Basically, what I had was a completely unpredictable model. Um, so at the time, so when I had read this, like this was the, my first read into dynamic systems like we might have touched on this a little bit in grad school but it clearly i think at the time went over my head and i was more interested in i think having answers to questions Um, i think that's what my mindset was more at the time so i didn't really understand the complexity of this article right away and in in my head I was like, I need to collect more data because it does mention data collection in in this article as being a piece of the a piece of the puzzle. So I set out, I created this. I didn't create it. I talked to 
um, a friend of mine who's very good with Excel, and he created this spreadsheet that tracks all the data that I thought was pertinent. Um, it tracks total tonnage. It tracks total tonnage for each lift. It tracks number of lifts, average intensities, what percentage of those number of lifts actually come from the competition movements and what comes from variations, um, what percent of the total tonnage is, how it's split up between uh, squat, bench, and deadlift. So I have all of this data and at my disposal, it should help me predict it should help me to predict better outcomes, right? We should see more um, predictable, sustainable um, progress. And yeah, all right, I think our progress got better uh, once I started using this, but it was still extremely variable and unpredictable, um, which just makes you have more questions. Um, so, I think at the time that like I was doing this, I still wasn't, I was still more of the mind frame of having answers to all of these questions, right? And if something didn't work, you just, you easily could chalk it up to, oh, their nutrition was off. Um, maybe they're sleep, maybe they're going through personal stuff. Like you would just chalk it up and you'd be like, oh, it's not, it's not the program's fault. It's not what we're doing. These exercises work. These, I'm tracking volumes. They're doing more than they were doing before. Um, the process is fine. We'll just, we'll just keep at it. However, what I was failing to do in this time is their personal stuff, their nutrition, all of that stuff, it's still the same person, right? And that stuff can't be just thrown out, right? So it does play a role, however, I think my lack of flexibility within the training programs to actually, I think counter is a bad word, but to actually counter some of the negative effects of life. Some, some things are just out of our control and it is what it is. Um, and I think what was happening is I was literally using linear math to try to solve nonlinear problems, right? So basically, number of lifts, average intensity, total tonnage, we have all of this stuff, right? And if we increase it over time, if that's our, the increase in volume is our input, our output should be increased PRs, right? The problem is it didn't work like that. One plus one in this case does not, does not equal two. So sometimes that input, you would follow all those paradigms and you would do everything right, but the output just wouldn't be there. Um, sometimes it's less, sometimes it levels off. Um, so, you know, I think finally, I don't know, this is maybe the summer of this past year. I just, you could, I couldn't find answers to any of these questions. No matter where I had looked, there were no answers. So what I decided to do was just kind of embrace having questions. Like, you know, I was making a list. So of things we know and things we don't know. And I'll tell you, the majority of the stuff, we just don't know. I knew that when people started my program, they tended to have good success right off the bat, right? And, and this was almost across the board for 100% of them. Um, you know, it could be that the, the novelty of the program was a major contributor to this, but it also, I'm not a big enough name in the powerlifting community where the big name lifters are coming to me for coaching. I get more people who've maybe competed once or twice or not at all, very limited experience. So maybe it's just beginner gains and they're finally following some type of program. Uh, in the Kylie article, he talks about how um, in the literature, periodized programs tend to be superior to non-periodized programs. I think um, I wrote this down somewhere, but 13 out of the 15 show that periodized programs were superior. but under the same guidelines, when these people were taking in for the studies, they were doing something different, 
So maybe it's not the periodization of the program that led to progress. It was the variability or the novelty of a new stimulus. So this is actually where my idea of tracking performance um, over time and when performance declines to change up training variables um, at that moment in time, whether it's frequencies, intensities, volumes, exercises, like we have a number of options there, but to basically give them a new training stimulus um, to further, hopefully, push adaptations. Um, since I started doing this, it seems to be working extremely well. We don't have as many lulls as we used to have. Um, you know, I think as human beings, we like having answers, right? So it's like when, you know, I'm sitting at the Arnold and everybody's critiquing everybody else, whether it's their technique, their coaching strategies, all of this stuff, instead of observing. Like what I see is there's differences across the board in how people train, how people lift, their mental approaches. Some people yell, some people are smiling. Um, there is just this very wide range of variables that have produced elite athletes. Very few of them, I think, have probably done the same things. And, you know, this gets back to what I was talking about earlier. Like, even with that same person, those training variables that worked before won't necessarily work the same way the second time you try to use them. I think this is why you see so many lifters bounce from program to program. So basically, you know, they start with one coach doing one thing. They see progress. Progress stalls out. And then they go to another coach. Progress starts back up again. And then cycle continues, right? So progress stalls out. They find a new coach. Um, I've known a lot of lifters like this. Um, and I think under the way that typical coaches work, this actually may be the best strategy as a lifter. The novelty of a new program tends to create training stimulus again. Um, you know, I, I used to be adamant about not jumping from coach to coach, but if a coach is going to be adamant on using the same training variables and the same training ideas that have stalled out progress, I'm not sure progress is going to continue unless the coach becomes more flexible. Um, I think we as coaches need to understand what we know and what we don't know. And the list of the things that we don't know are far exceeds what we actually know. And um, I forget who said this quote. I actually, um, it remind this quote was um, reminded to me in um, the Level Up podcast with um, Barbell Medicine. But the only certainty is uncertainty. So if we embrace what we don't know and kind of take those general strength principles that have been around forever. I mean, we know that, that they do work to some extent because people have seen a lot of progress using them. Um, but I think the problem with this is, is we tend to focus only on the ones that do well under these circumstances. We tend to not focus on the ones that don't. So for every program or system that has created a world champion, there are hundreds that didn't do well on that same program or system. And part of it, in my opinion, is the lack of flexibility that tends to come from these programs. Um, the more I coach, the more I realize that each person is their own individual snowflake and they need certain amounts of um, person, not even personal attention, but you know, you need to be able to adapt to that person that is in front of you on that given day, because on a day to day basis, that person is not the same person. Um, so once I started embracing the things that I don't know and like that list just kept growing. Um, and even if you uh, I'm, this was in Kylie's um, article, too, um, when we're 
we're talking about the variables of training, like the timing. So even like something as simple as one hormone being produced, like testosterone, the there's monthly cycles, daily cycles, um, how stress affects it. Like literally each subsystem of the human body has so many variables that actually affects it, right? So that rabbit hole, when you start listing the things that you don't know and what actually affects those things goes on infinitively. Like, um, and, and it makes you realize that the complexity of what we're attempting to deal with is massive, massive. And I don't think we can truly understand the complexity of it. But we try to by putting these very basic linear models together, like volumes and average intensities and number of lifts. I know I've done it and it doesn't work. I'm at this point now where it actually takes longer to construct my programs because I use this Excel spreadsheet and I don't even know what that data is telling me anymore. Um, I guess I've moved more from a data-driven program to an intuitive coaching program. And I do take into consideration that that data that's in front of me. Like, you know, I the only thing I really use in that Excel spreadsheet anymore is the acute chronic work ratio to show me that I'm hitting baseline volumes. Like, uh, I'm not trying to say like volume's not important or intensity's not important. Of course they are. Um, but I think there's just a baseline we need to hit, and like increasing volume could be a tool in the toolbox to drive progress, to have that training stimulus, the novelty of a training stimulus changed, right? So. Maybe we're using a low-frequency, high-intensity program with somebody for for a period of time. We're seeing progress increase, increase, increase. All of a sudden, little nagging things are starting to pop up. We see performance leveling off and or decreasing. And it's unexplainable, right? Like, it just all of a sudden doesn't work anymore. So then maybe... We take a little deload period, right? So if, you know, fatigue does accumulate over time, so, you know, we let them recover. I I don't think it takes that long to recover. I'm, I think it takes just a few days. Um, but maybe there's a psychological burnout that happens from something like this, right? Maybe there's some, some stalling because they're bored with the program or, or whatever it may be, right? But for some reason, that lifter is done with that training stimulus. Like it's just not working anymore. So taking a quick little break, I think psychologically and, and even physically, let some of those nagging things clear up and stuff. And then changing it up. So maybe now instead of a low volume, high intensity program, maybe we go to a higher volume, lower intensity program, right? There, there's a difference in training in training stimulus. Like I, I think constantly needing an alteration of training stimulus is, necess is necessary to keep driving adaptation, but we're stuck in this realm of specificity, specificity, specificity. Like, um, to be honest, I, I think I heard this on one of Mike Teixeira's podcasts, um, but he was talking about like he doesn't know why he would give somebody fives um, compared to sixes is just kind of like an intuition thing. At the end of the day, I don't think it fucking matters. I think whether it's five, whether, whether it's sixes, whether it's sevens, whether it's twos, threes, ones, I don't necessarily know what the... What the difference in that whole thing is. I think it you're using different weights. I think that's just a way to alter training stimulus a little bit um, to hopefully keep enough variation in there to keep driving progress. But I'm not sure how long that can work. Um, you know, I know there are some people who use those methods and they're extremely well uh, done. And, you know, there are a lot of coaches who use those methods that have much greater success than I do so what do I know but um, but whatever these, these are my thoughts so if we need constant variation in order to drive training stimulus right and we have this huge complex system that is a human being in front of us where we absolutely cannot apply simplistic linear math to solve this problem right 
But what we'll do is we'll post on Instagram all the ones who have success when we do, right? You very rarely hear about the failures, and I think I harp more on the failures. Uh, if you go back through through my articles that I've written in the past, like those are the things that really get my attention is why something didn't work, and this is how I think I came um, to this. It's not. I'm more observational, I think, than most, and I think that literally focusing on the negative has just led me to having more questions and less answers and arriving at embracing the uncertainty of things, um, so to speak. So all of this is happening, and I'm realizing how complex the human being is, and I stumble across dynamic systems theories. So I start reading a lot about these um, in articles and stuff, but some of the concepts, like I said, the first time that I read Kylie's article, a lot of it went over my head and I didn't truly understand what I was reading. I thought I did, but I didn't. So I started reading a bunch of this stuff um, and it it was hard. It was hard to understand because like, I'm, I'm trying to... You know, I still have that like old school thinking when, in terms of training. So it, it's hard for me to actually relate it because I just I haven't let go of those old thoughts about what works and what doesn't. Because I think for me, I wasn't not that I'm not confident in my abilities as a coach, but I understood my limitations as a coach and I needed to rely on some of this older information in order for me to actually see results so it was hard for me to let go of it because I, I i wasn't embracing the art of coaching and i wasn't sure that i was ready to at that time um so i'd reached out to mike amato and um asked him what he knew about this stuff and he sent me um a picture of a textbook so uh, i looked at the picture of the textbook and i was like okay um this is great. I'm going to order this. However, I'm having a hard time understanding the concepts that I'm reading in these articles. Let me search for a more um, introductory uh, level like textbook. Um, so I, I was fortunate enough in grad school where I, I got to be a TA for a few semesters and I kind of understood how a curriculum for a class was put together. Not that I could like, you know, be the world's best college professor or create the best curriculum, but I saw how it was set up, so I just tried to mimic that a little bit. So I found an introductory textbook on nonlinear pedagogy, um, and this is where I stumbled upon the constraints-led approach. So because the first three years of my lifting life, I was coached by Boris Shako, so technique has always been drilled in me as one of the most important aspects of training. Um, and I still hold true to that today. And it's probably because it was instilled upon me that, that early on. Um, and what I was trying to do is I was taking his exercises, um, that would help fix certain areas of the lift that tended to be weak. And I would just apply it and kind of hope for the best. And I was kind of mimicking the, um, intensities lifts and all number of lifts and all of that stuff, volumes, um, of his programs to try to mimic the same results. The problem is I'm not Boris Shako and I'm by no means going to mimic those results. So I'm reading this introductory textbook and I was like, holy shit, this is literally what I've been trying to do. But I just, I wasn't accounting for the complexity of the human being and the differences that each person possesses. So I had all these blanket exercises to fix these blanket problems um, and just assumed that they would work for everyone. And that's not the case. So I dove deep into the constraints-led approach. So I read this text, the introductory textbook, plus two others, and started implementing what I was understanding to be a constraints-led approach. Um, you know, and then, I, you know, I realized that the feedback that I was giving needed to be strategic. Um, the words that I chose to use, when I chose to use words, when I chose to use video, all of these things needed to be strategic. And I also had to pay attention to each individual learner because everybody learns vastly different. Um, and so one of the decisions I had made months back was I'm going to start letting performance dictate my programming. 
Um, and part of performance is how the athlete is is feeling, like mood for one, but also like little nagging things that, that pop up. But we're going to train hard as long as we can. And from there, we'll we'll figure it out. So even up until recently, I was um, so I've always done like high, medium and low stress training days, because if you go hard one day, you need to chill out another. But I've now started to make them go hard every day and they'll their performance and how they feel will dictate when those medium and lower stress days come into play. Um, so I started using a constraints led approach. So basically I would still use, so over time my variations had changed, right? So I, I stopped using so much comp stance for everything, comp grip for everything, um, competition deadlift for everything and started moving people's feet around their grips around, um, and just training all kinds of various angles and trying to find weaknesses within those angles and just kind of pushing those, those weaknesses. So I still have this like first level exercise selection that I use to try to fix a problem, right? I, I know enough about the person in front of me, but let me give them this problem and let's see what they can get from it. So usually without me giving a ton of feedback, but letting them know what the exercise is for, what I want to see them do, and maybe giving a, a little feedback here and there, we'll start with something. So this could be something like a high bar wide stance squat. So a lot of times power lifters, right? You see the hips pushed back heavily. Um, bar really low in the back so you get about a 10 degree forward lean right at the start let me just get them out of what their comfortable positions are let's widen the stance out let's because most times i'm widening in a stance i'm making the stance wider as opposed to making it more narrow so this just seems to be a good starting point um, if somebody's wide they'll do the exact opposite um, as a couple of the newer people have realized um, recently so we'll put the bar higher up on that back to get rid of that torso lean. We'll spread their feet out and let's just see what it looks like. Um, I'll even do this. So if somebody's pitching forward in the squat, so they go down, the chest caves in as they start coming up and the hips go back, that's the same angle to me, right? That's the angle that they're strong in um, for one reason or another. So let's just get them out of that, put them in a position that they're probably not going to be very comfortable in and let's see what it looks like. Um, so we'll run that high bar wide stance squat for a few weeks. We'll track performance. It'll be tough at first. Um, and then they tend to hit like a little wave with it and like they'll be progressing weights on it each week, each week. And then all of a sudden that'll level off a little bit. Um, when it levels off. So typically, um, what I'll do here is we'll just kind of assess where they're at with everything. So, um, Let's say it fixed it, the issue. And like, let me just even explain the technique thing. Like there's no proof that there's an optimal technique for everything, right? So what I want out of something, I'm not even sure anymore, right? But I, I need to see an increase in performance from the competition lifts. Um, and if that's happening, I know we're on the right track, maybe for reasons I can't explain. I can come up with logical reasons, um, you know, and they're observational, like Shaco had done a ton of research on national level lifters and optimal patterns that they, there were things that they all tended to do. Like, um, I think for bar path on the bench press, there were four, um, from that four different ones from national champions. Um, so it's showing some individual variability, but another 13 that just never produced a national champion. So there's probably some guidelines that follow for performance. What my logical reasoning for this is, is let's just take the pitching forward in the squat or even just like a really um, hips back approach to the squat. I don't think these are bad. Um, at all if they're yielding high levels of performance. However, I think if we don't address the other angles, right, I think there's a load tolerance that our body is capable of um, tolerating, right? So there's loads that we're capable of tolerating and I think positions do affect this. I think this is where biomechanics do matter. So I think if we're really hips back, we're just putting a lot of stress on that lower back. Um, and I think our abilities to handle volumes and maximal weights this way, you might at the time be stronger this way, right? Um, and I'm not saying you should change the way that you actually squat in competition. 
Um, but I, I think being more, if, if you do have that big lean hips back or even pitching forward in the squat, I think being more upright and training that and strengthening that for a period of time, right? According to EMG studies, so take the information for what it's worth, a wider stance squat puts more emphasis on the hips. Um, so building up those hips just might take a little bit of pressure off the lower back, right? If they're a little bit stronger, maybe they can contribute a little bit more to the lifts um, and just getting out of those similar areas and just kind of letting everything readjust a little bit, I think has um, a lot of good benefits. Um, Cause I think in those cases as coaches, we need to kind of be smart and take that into consideration with everything else. How do they squat? How do they deadlift? All right, well, they use a lot of lower back for both. All right, so maybe a high-frequency squat and deadlift program is not appropriate for them. Maybe, you know, if we're going to squat and deadlift like this, maybe it needs to be a little bit lower frequency to keep them, to keep them healthier, but maybe we can drive some, some intensities on, on those days. But, like, th- that information, I think, needs to be taken into consideration. But we should be training other angles as well because it carries over more than you think. Um, I know sports-specific training has been a buzzword in the in the literature and um, coaching realms for a long period of time, and I don't necessarily buy into it that much. Like in the gym, we're not training anything specific for any field sport. Like your cones are not defenders. The cones do not react, and you're missing all kinds of perceptual information that happens on a field. It's not sport-specific. You're trying to change the biomechanics of somebody sprinting based off of those types of constraints. It doesn't carry over. There is zero carryover. Even if you talk about using a constraints-led approach, which I have seen on the internet, by adjusting stride length using cones, it's not the same. There are none of those. There's a certain flow that happens between defense and offense in a game, and that perceptual awareness in the the picking up on that information, processing it, and making a decision based off of it for every athlete is an integral part of sports performance. We're not training that in the gym. What we're training is general qualities that carry over to the sport. Powerlifting, however, is a little bit different because if we wanted to, we could train that actual sport on a day-to-day basis. Probably wouldn't work out very well doing that, running a meet three or four days a week, but you kinda could. However, even then, performance is ego-driven. Practice is not. So the actual mental aspect of it is very different. So this is why I think it's important that we compete more frequently than less frequently so that you can get used to some of those things. Um, So, you know, the specificity of training, what we're really looking for is we just want to see our one rep max maxes go up. So we should track that and make decisions based off of that. So, you know, with that a more intuitive approach, I'm in um, one of my lifters, Marilyn, had made a good point that like our intuition is probably data driven because we're processing a lot of information from watching our lifters lift or and on top of with the conversations that we have with them and and all of that stuff um so you know i'm reading about a constraints-led approach and dynamic systems and the complexity of um the system itself and like you know i've even talked to um so for some reason as a coach i think we have eight people with doctorate degrees on our team it's about five a little more than that's a little less than five percent and the amount of people with master's degrees is very high so i draw a very intellectual type of human being um into the group which is really cool because we have some really fun conversations um hence where Marilyn had said that you know our intuition is probably data driven we just can't put numbers on it or put it in an excel, in an excel spreadsheet um which is extremely interesting. I also have some that do machine learning stuff. So here I am in my head. I'm like, is there a way that like, I'm using programs and past data to try to predict, not predict, but forecast future decisions. However, I'm doing that and I'm writing these four week blocks. And I am realizing that I need to adapt these blocks 
so much that I am way off in my forecasting abilities. So there has to be a way that we can input some of this information and just get more accurate forecasting predictions. But I don't even know if that's possible. Um, we'll mess around with this a little bit and see what we can get out of it. But I really don't. I, I really don't know what to do with the, the data aspect of things. Now, um, I don't even know what to do with my Excel spreadsheets anymore if it's taking me longer to write the programs. It's something that I'm not going to make a rash decision on, but it's something I absolutely have to think about um, in terms of the timing and whether I feel it's important to capture that data or not. Um, so I, I did all this stuff in the constraints-led approach. I started implementing it. So I stopped. We have this. So one of the old paradigms is, you know, you have this high volume, lower intensity that drops down to a low volume, higher intensity that gets specific near a competition that has a taper that leads to super compensation that leads to improved performance. So that's how I've always structured things. However, that's just not right. That is just really old, obscured it's poor thinking that just doesn't take into consideration any of the other aspects. Um, it's implying that the human is a very simple system that you can predict outcomes based off of simple linear math. We know that's not true because we see this happen all of the time. We see the result of that setup not work all of the time. Right, But we'll only focus on the ones that it works for. And the other ones we just chalk up as some kind of error. Right, But what about those ones, right? And like, it's naive to think that we know more, more than what we really know. So I started implementing the um, constraints-led approach and we're seeing a ton of success. Like with very few lulls, um, it, it tends to be. And like, and this comes from Kylie's article talking about the importance of training variability and the novelty of programs. And exercise selection is one of those. So being able to tweak some of this stuff, maybe it's just the variability. Maybe it's not necessarily the improvements in technique. Maybe it's just the variability that's happening. However, I do have this idea of what I want their technique to look like. I put these problems in front of them to learn from and to solve. And when they solve these problems, their competition lift looks more like how I imagined it in my mind and their one rep max is going up. So who knows why that's happening? It could be for a number of reasons. And this isn't just all beginners. This is, you know, even with elite lifters, like even with, you know, lifter, I have a lifter who pulls, Dave pulls over 700, um, his best meat squat 645 as a 105. Like that's a, that's a big squat, but he just doubled 675 a couple days ago on the, on the squat. And he's doubled 725 on the deadlift. Like we're seeing this nice continual progress regardless of the level of the lifter. Um, and I think it comes from just embracing that uncertainty and being more adaptable uh, and more flexible within the programming. So, you know, I'm, I'm furthering my reading, furthering my reading, um, and, you know, chatting with Zach Abor, Steph Allen, Mike Amato about all of these, like, theories and, and all of this stuff. So then, um, Mike, I'm pretty sure it was Mike, um, said that I should read the book Chaos. I'm not sure how to say the author's name, James Gleick, G-L-E-I-C-K, I think it is, or just K, um, but it's titled Chaos. So it's basically the history of science um, in terms of chaos theory. And I'm reading it, and all of a sudden, this stuff starts making more sense, right? Like how they came about uh, understanding, like forecasting for the weather, and basically how small disturbances within that complex system can have large effects right and vice versa like you know we could have large disturbances within the system and see zero effects um and basically like that it's non-linear 
Um, and in the constraints-led approach, it was saying this too, that it's a dynamic system that's non-linear, right? Where we see progressions, regressions, skips, and jumps. Well, this is basically exactly what chaos theory is. It's There's a bunch of irregularities, but over time, you, you tend to see trends within these irregularities. Um, you know, so one of the, and I may be screwing this part up because I'm telling a story as it doesn't apply to powerlifting. Um, but Lorenz, the guy who came up with basically our modern weather forecasting system, um, you know, I most so Newtonian math basically. If you can predict initial conditions, you can predict future outcomes, right? This is old school strength training, right? You, you get somebody in front of you, you do uh, your assessment, right? Based off of whatever the fuck you want to assess, right? And you get your initial conditions. And from those initial conditions, you predict future outcomes um, based off of like your beliefs as a coach. So if I, I put volume, intensity, whatever else you feel is important into that input, the output should be increased PRs. The problem is, um, as Lorenz had found out, is if you start, so he would take those initial conditions or whatever, get some numbers, um, I'm definitely screwing this part up a little bit, but you guys will get what I'm talking about. So what he ended up doing was starting in the middle somewhere of his equation. So just picking a number on a data plot that his equation had put on a map. So instead of taking those initial conditions, he started it from a different spot somewhere in the middle. And what he got was something different. And every time he started somewhere else, he got something different. Um, another interesting fact at this of this at the time, um, computers only went to three decimal places. Um, as computers got stronger and they could go to more decimal places, the, the more decimal places that they could go down, the better the future predicted outcomes would be. So, I mean, we're talking minuscule amounts that some of the world's brightest mathematicians didn't think were, were enough to actually influence systems, right? I mean, we're talking like seven, eight decimal places down, that rounding throws off long-term data immensely. So the fact that, you know, we're taking those initial conditions, um, somebody who walks into our facility or contacts us online, we're way off with those initial conditions. And those initial conditions are always changing. That person on day one is very different on day two and very different on from month one to month two, from year one to year two. They are a different person. It is never the exact same person in front of you. So it's like what Lorenz was doing with the weather. He was picking date, different data plots and starting. Each day is a different starting point when somebody comes into that gym and you're gonna get on a graph, a absolute mess of lines that is completely unpredictable and it doesn't make any sense. So why would we hold on to that information as if it, it didn't do that. I think it's just like human nature in general to want to have the right answers and have the answers to things. And it's hard to say, I don't know, but that's what it is. Every day that your lifter goes into that gym, you are starting it from a completely different spot to predict that outcome. Yeah, and sometimes it might get close, right? Because that's what we're trying to do is get close, but it will never be the exact same. And we don't deal in exact science. We need to embrace the uncertainty of it and just make decisions based off of what we know about the human in front of us. And as a coach, this is a lot of work. I literally make sure that I have conversations with all of my lifters because I kind of need to know where their head's at and like how they're feeling and what's going on in their life because that stuff matters, right? And like, I'll label my main concerns. So sometimes this could be confidence. If somebody's putting nines as an RPE on sets, um, but I'm looking at them, I'm like, this looks like a seven. Okay, well, we need to 
just push weights. That's the thing that we need to do. We need to get their confidence rolling. Um, you know, maybe it's something technique-wise I want to fix, or you know, I don't know. Like, it just it needs to be flexible and and you need to be able to adapt on a day-to-day basis. And I think most coaches, I, I don't know of many that actually look at the complexity of the entire person in front of them and make decisions based off of that. Um, I think it's it's rare to see. Um, and I think it's rare to see because it's extremely difficult, right? And it goes against so many conventional norms. Like I'll tell you, I have a 15 or 16 people competing April well, April 6th and 7th, I have 16 or 17 people competing that weekend. I'm not doing what I did before. Not even to the fucking slightest. Yeah, we're going to taper a little bit before the meet. Um, because I think there gets to be a point where risk outweighs reward in that case. But like, you know, and I'll let volume drop down a little bit. But like, if progress is going well, I'm not changing a fucking thing. We're just going to run that into the meet. Um, and see what happens to take 17 people and do something that I've never done before. It's a little, it's a little frightening because if I do what everybody else is doing and there are bad results, it just gets chalked up to, Oh, well that that's, this stuff happens. You know, you don't always hit PRs. It's, you know, we want to embrace the unknown when, when bad things happen. But we want to always have the answers. But this time around, if I, I have 17, 16 people competing and it doesn't go well for a lot of them, they're going to think I'm fucking nuts and I don't know what I'm doing. Um, hopefully, the progress that they have seen in training over this period of time and all the PRs that everybody is hitting, like they can understand that, okay, there might just need to be some tweaks to the system for that individual person. But each person is its own complex system. So, you know, I think you can't just apply the same type of ideas from person from person to person. Yeah, there's some blanket things you start from, but it needs to deviate in extraordinary ways in order for it to be successful for that individual person to continue to see success over a long period of time. Um, I do believe this is where like a lot of people switch to using gear, switch to using drugs, um, is because things don't work anymore. And then it's like, well, it has to be my genetics or, you know, they just start looking for an answer somewhere else. Um, to each their own own with that nobody on my team will ever do that and if they do they will be kicked off of my team um but i think you know hopefully i can develop a a, a model that helps me predict things but I, I i'm not too sure that that is even possible and i think you know, we're still not going to have the answers in my lifetime on how to get this to be more predictable. It's not really where the money and research is going to go. I think we care more about predicting the weather than we do about some grassroots sport that a lot of people don't really give a shit about. Um, but uh, I don't know. Who knows over time um, what we can figure out. I just I hope to be less wrong as we move forward. Um, over time uh, I think you know it's hard too because a lot of people aren't willing to have these conversations right so I'm trying and here's where the flow of consciousness really comes in I'm trying to get information to make my lifters better by reading about meteorology it's not easy like dynamic systems yeah the constraints led approach like just it spoke it spoke to my soul on how training should be organized but like chaos theory is the the bigger overreaching theory of it all right and and like the complexity of it and embracing the complexity of it and just understanding that we don't know shit when it comes to this stuff it's not easy and i think there's 
especially in something like powerlifting, there's just a lot of egos and the inability to have this conversation or even to embrace that this might be right in that old thinking like think of where periodization models are derived from the general adaptation syndrome came out in the 20s like in the last 100 fucking years we have learned a lot more about stress than just applying an overload decreasing that overload and then you let a period of time go by and then you adapt and super compensate. It's a load of bullshit. Yeah, has it worked in the past? Yeah, but probably for reasons we don't truly understand. I think volume's important because it forces the tissues to adapt. So I think it's important more to keep the lifter healthy. Um, And of course, there's a baseline volume that needs to be met. You can't just do one squat a month and, and expect to hit PRs. I just, I don't see that working um ever but who fucking knows like we really don't and if we i think observed more than we critiqued and we embraced being wrong um you know one i think so many feelings wouldn't get hurt we could have a lot of good conversations um and and move American strength sports forward in a better way. Um, but it does make it fun. It does make it fun having all these different systems out there and we compete against each other and stuff. Um, and I like talking about this stuff, even if it's just to myself into a headset. Um, I just, I don't know. I'll, I'm going to write more about this stuff. People are going to listen to this and think I'm fucking nuts. But we'll let the results speak for themselves um, because I'm, I'm pretty confident I am on to something. And, you know, I, my first ever powerlifting conversation um, was after a, an ISSA seminar that Fred Hatfield and Josh Bryant did. My first ever powerlifting conversation was with the first guy who squatted a thousand pounds um, getting drunk at a bar. Um, but I, I remember him saying that training is either good, better or best. Um, he also said that Verkashansky and the Russians didn't give out all of their good stuff um, when they let down the Iron Curtain a little bit. Um, so, like, putting that stuff into perspective, like, we're trying to mimic these programs where we probably didn't have all the information even back then when we thought we did. Um, but how all training's good, better, or best, right? You'll improve from training. Um, but I'm not in this to be good or better. And I think in order to be the best, you can't just focus on the ones that are doing well. You need to observe and understand those outliers. And once you can understand those outliers, I think progress can be better um, for the long term. Um, But I guess we'll see. Um, You can read more about this stuff on the internet, post it on Instagram and everywhere else social media is. Um, Follow me on Instagram, KWCAN, our team, Precision Powerlifting Systems. Uh, Stay strong, Boston.